Lecture two: Why no single learning theory works. Can we have a theory of learning that applies to everyone learning and everything to be learned? This was arguably the ambition of early learning theories, and researchers developed and actively tested these theories through the 1960s. And the work they did continues to inform our understanding of learning processes even today. In this lecture, I want to give you a sense for how much we learned about learning using these early approaches. I also want to begin to talk about how this fell short of explaining the vast array of learning that people and animals do. In particular, these theories ignored the role played by who the learner is. Why the learner is learning, and they failed to offer a very good explanation for why some things seem harder to learn than others. Now, the kernel of learning theories is that learning in everyday life involves associating two things with one another. An infant learns that the parent's appearance signals comfort and food. A student learns that the ending of the music indicates that class is about to begin. A student might also learn that good study habits yield the reward of high grades, or a stockbroker that extensive overtime brings a larger bonus. My personal favorite is one that happens every evening at my house. One of the grown-ups says the words, "Did anybody feed the dog?" and the dog goes immediately to his bowl and he stands there waiting. I actually bet he starts to salivate too. So my dog has an association between the phrase. Did anybody feed the dog? And the appearance of food in his bowl. When he hears the phrase, he demonstrates he's learned this association by behaving as though he's getting ready to eat. Now, an important thing about the study of these associations is that I don't speculate at all about what is in my dog's head. Rather, I'm just noting that he's demonstrating an association or a link between one event, the words "Did anybody feed the dog?" And a second event, the arrival of food in his bowl. How we acquire these associations between two different stimuli is an important and it's a foundational question in the science of learning. And early studies of this type of learning called it classical conditioning. Classical conditioning looks at learning of the association between two stimuli, two things that stimulate a response. By capitalizing on instinctive or reflexive responses, and these are behaviors that aren't voluntary, and they kind of seem to come built into an organism. So you might think of sweating, or blinking, or salivating. In the most famous work on classical conditioning, Pavlov looked at salivation, which is a reflexive response to having food placed in your mouth, and that's true for dogs and for humans. You can actually try this at home today. If you think about your favorite food and you vividly imagine how that food tastes and feels in your mouth, you'll actually experience an increase in saliva production right now. Now, before I go on to tell you a little more about classical conditioning research, I need to introduce some terminology, and I'm going to do it with the salivation example. Pavlov set up a kind of weird little apparatus for investigating conditioning. He had dogs in a cage. And in a slightly gruesome twist, he surgically placed their salivary glands outside their jaw, and this actually allowed him to measure saliva production more easily. 
And then Pavlov paired two events to see if the dogs could acquire the association. Now, for Pavlov, the first event was food. He, it was a meat powder that he gave his dogs, and he called this the unconditioned stimulus. Now, when the dogs were given the meat powder, they produced saliva, and Pavlov called this the unconditioned response. But prior to giving the dogs the meat powder, Pavlov also rang a bell, and the bell tone was the conditioned stimulus. And salivating to the bell rather than the food is what Pavlov called a conditioned response. And this indicates that the dog has acquired an association between the bell tone and the arrival of the meat powder. At first, even though the bell is occurring right before the arrival of food, dogs don't salivate to the sound of the bell. But after a number of exposures to the bell, followed by the meat powder, they start to do so. And the salivation to the bell is a conditioned response, and it shows the dogs have come to associate that bell tone with being given the meat powder. The example of my own dog can actually be interpreted very similarly. He's come to recognize a certain sequence of sounds, the feed, the dog with a question intonation, as signaling the arrival of food in his dish. Now, what it takes for a dog or any animal or human to acquire associations like this are three things. Repetition, temporal contiguity, and differential contingency. And let me explain what those three words really mean. Repetition is being exposed multiple times to the pairing of those two stimuli. It's very rare to learn that two stimuli are associated with only one exposure, although it can happen. Mostly, however, we need to see those stimuli happen together repeatedly. We need to hear the bell and get the meat powder over and over. Now, temporal contiguity means that the two stimuli have to happen close enough together in time. It's pretty hard to acquire associations between events that are widely spaced in time. And this fact actually is probably connected to some of the difficulties we humans have with being responsive to the long-term outcomes of our immediate behavior. So, for example, there are many outcomes uh, regarding health in later life that have to do with behaviors we've engaged in years earlier. It's hard for us to learn those associations. Finally, differential contingency of the conditioned stimulus-unconditioned stimulus pairing is a super technical way of saying that the conditioned stimulus, in Pavlov's case, this is the bell, the conditioned stimulus has to be informative about the occurrence of the unconditioned stimulus, the arrival of the meat powder. What this means is when the conditioned stimulus occurs, the unconditioned stimulus will come. If we said, did anybody feed the dog all the time before and after our dog has been fed and at random intervals throughout the day after which we didn't feed him, he probably wouldn't acquire that association between that question and the arrival of food. Once an association is learned, you can see that the animal or human may generalize that association. That is, apply that learning to similar situations. So, for example, let's consider a study in which birds are conditioned to respond with pecking to an 800 hertz tone. Now, if you then go on and you play a variety of tones for the birds, you're going to see that some conditioned responding, some pecking, happens around 800 hertz as well. So the 800 hertz tone might get you the maximal pecking, but 
there's going to be pecking to tones that are sort of close to that 800 hertz tone. This is actually a very important feature of conditioned associations, specifically in learning in general. If they were too specific, those associations, you can see that the kind of learning they supported wouldn't be very useful. Associations need to accommodate some variability to be truly useful. For example, words can be uttered with variations in pronunciation, even if the same person is saying the word. Those variations happen because of the other words in the sentence, the surrounding environment, and so on. And different people definitely pronounce the same word in different ways. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. We can still recognize the word that's being said. An associative learning mechanism that required us to pronounce words in a single way would be problematic for understanding language. But in fact, you probably don't even notice these variations except in unusual circumstances when the variations actually make it problematic to understand. So, for example, you might think of someone with a particularly strong accent. As people interested in learning, one important question is whether there are factors that make those associations, the learning of those associations, stronger. And what we mean by that is that the conditioned response is either more intense or it's more consistently produced. Now, to think about these factors, we can go back to differential contingency. And that has to do with the unique informative value of the conditioned stimulus for the conditioned response to occur. If a conditioned stimulus is uniquely predictive of, a, of an unconditioned stimulus, then conditioning is stronger than when that's not the case. If only one phrase or one sound signals that one event, the arrival of the meat powder, the conditioning is stronger than if food arrives after the dog hears a lot of different kinds of words, like the dog is hungry, the dog needs to be fed, the dog wants food, and so on. In fact, it actually turns out that if you try to use two conditioned stimuli, stimuli, you add a second when the animals already learned a first one, they don't actually learn that second one. So Pavlov's dogs, for example, if they're now given both a light and the bell, they don't learn to salivate to the light. It's redundant, so they just don't learn it. And one way to think about this is to think that learning is efficient. Now, a second important question actually relates to the matching between the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus. It turns out rats very easily learn to associate a taste with nausea in experiments that link some tastes with poison and others not. And rats also learn very easily to connect lights or noise with shock and to respond to a light or a noise by running away from the area where they're shocked. But if you try to cross those stimuli, things don't work so well. It's hard to associate light with nausea, and it's hard to associate tastes with shock. You can also ask how to weaken associations. Now, the simplest route to extinction of an association is to present that conditioned stimulus, like the bell, without the unconditioned stimulus. And if you repeatedly present the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus, you'll get a decline in the likelihood that the animal is going to give you that conditioned response. If I keep ringing the bell and there is no meat powder, the dog will stop salivating. And one way to think about this is that if you do this, if you present the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus, you're undermining that differential contingency. You're actually making the conditioned stimulus less informative about whether the unconditioned stimulus is coming. 
Associations don't always involve responses we view as neutral, like salivation. One of the most famous examples of classical conditioning involved Watson and Rayner's conditioning of fear in a young infant that they called Albert. Now, the goal of the study was to get Albert to respond to rats with fear. And the way they accomplished this was that they would present the rats to the infant in conjunction with a loud, unpleasant noise. And eventually, little Albert acquired a fear reaction to rats, and he generalized that fear reaction to white, furry animals of all sorts. In fact, the point of the little Albert experiment was to demonstrate that phobias were learned behaviors, not inborn, as had been previously thought. The little Albert experiment may seem cruel, and it's probably not repeatable in today's world because protections for children in research have strengthened. But it suggests you can treat phobias the way you would extinguish any conditioned response, by extinction. In fact, there are two versions of this type of therapy for phobias that are actually in use today. Both incorporate a basic extinction type of thinking. One is called flooding and response prevention, and the other is called systematic desensitization or counterconditioning. And in both cases, you expose people to the scary stimulus and you do something to prevent them from having a full-blown fear reaction, such as relaxation breathing or other kinds of techniques. And the result, after some time, is that that fear response is extinguished. No more phobia. So classical conditioning seemed to get us very far, but there are some holes here. First of all, there's very little attention to the awareness of learning or the idea that people may actively try to learn something, which we know they do, And there's no attention to the idea of feedback in this approach to learning. Consider a cartoon by Mark Stivers, which depicts the same Pavlovian dog scenario we discussed earlier. But this time, one of the dogs turns to the other dog and says, watch what I can make Pavlov do. As soon as I drool, he'll smile and write in his little book. The cartoon is funny, but the deeper message is about features of learning that can't be explained by learning to associate two stimuli in such a way that you can evoke a conditioned response. A comprehensive treatment of learning has to account for the many cases in which we aren't passive recipients of environmental events, but actively altering the environment to to achieve particular goals. The idea that consequences of our behaviors, rewards and punishments, are important aspects of how we learn is a very entrenched idea, and you can find this idea operating in many different situations. The idea has a lot of appeal. It matches intuitions we have about the pursuit of pleasure, like if it feels good, we're going to do it. And it also seems to at least start to take into account the fact that we do consider consequences when we are engaging in our behavior. Around the turn of the century, Thorndike was observing cats, figuring out how to open a latch and escape from their cage into an adjacent enclosure that had a large, smelly dish of salmon. At first, cats had to do a lot of trial and error to accomplish the task, but once they figured out how to open the latch, not surprisingly, latch opening behavior increased. Thorndike observed this, and he articulated what he called the law of effect as a rule about how behavior might be governed by its consequences. Thorndike's law of effect implies two things. First, an important class of associations that we learn are the ones between what we do and the consequences of that behavior. Second, the law of effect implies that we change our behaviors when we've learned those contingencies. Now, 
Thorndike also notes that we can have positive or negative consequences, and they can either occur or cease. And behaviors should vary accordingly, provided we learn the behavior and consequence associations accurately. So after this, researchers began to conduct experiments to see how they could alter behavior by changing or controlling the consequences that were attached to behavior. These experiments varied widely, and they ranged from conditioning rats to press levers or getting pigeons to peck lights in exchange for food rewards to giving monetary rewards to human participants who were engaged in different kinds of problem-solving. This research area was termed operant conditioning research, and it differed from classical conditioning because it emphasized associations between behaviors and consequences rather than associations between two stimuli. The assumption is that when an animal is rewarded for a behavior, increases in the behavior show that the animal has learned to associate the behavior and the reward. Now, all this makes a ton of sense to our intuitive ideas about how people and animals learn to behave. If I want my dog to sit, I get him to do it, and then I give him a liver snack. He will sit for me every chance he gets after that. Well, it might take a couple liver treats. If I want my child to perform well in school, I pay him a dollar for every A he receives on an assignment. And since he's quite the mercenary child, that works pretty well. But then, not surprisingly, if I stop the rewards, the behavior might eventually stop, too. As with classical conditioning, it's important that the reward be contingent on the response for the person or the animal to learn the association. The reinforcer has to follow the behavior when it occurs. However, you can ask just how much rewarding should happen in order to maximally shape behavior to form the strongest association, and it turns out there are actually some options. A fixed ratio schedule is one option, and what that means is every time you press the lever 10 times, you get a food pellet. Every time you get 300% spelling tests in a row, you get a dollar, and this is a lot like piecework in factories. Another alternative is called a variable ratio reinforcement schedule. This is a little different, In a variable schedule, on average, you get a food pellet every time you press the lever 10 times. But the actual number of lever presses varies over time. Sometimes you have to press 12. Other times you only have to press 8. And what this does is it creates a little bit of uncertainty. You never know quite when you're going to get a reward. So how do these different approaches to rewarding people work for maintaining a behavior? If you want to have someone engage in the behavior maximally, a variable ratio schedule is a very good one. In animal research, the animal will respond at a high rate all the time because it can never tell exactly when the reward is going to come again. Now, for human beings, gambling with slot machines is exactly the same scenario. It exposes you to variable ratio reinforcement. The machines are actually programmed to pay off at variable ratio schedules. And if you visit a casino, you see something that looks a lot like pigeons and levers. You see sort of a mechanical rate of shoving coins into slots and pulling levers. Another everyday example for many of us actually involves whining children. If you consider that when you shop with children, they whine for toys and candy and so on. Now, most parents say no to this whining most of the time. But virtually every parent occasionally gives in. 
And this creates a variable ratio reinforcement schedule. That's the reinforcement schedule that's guaranteed to create strong escalating responding. In other words, we're doing exactly what we need to do to increase whining. Well, what are we supposed to do? Actually, one thing to do with the child case is actually advice that you'll see in many parenting books. So the idea is that first the child has to ask in a normal, not whining voice, for the desired object. And then the parent has to make an immediate, firm and fast decision about saying yes or no and stick to the decision. And if the whining voice is there from the start, the answer is always no. It's really good advice, but it's really hard to follow. Well, these two examples actually bring me to the issue of punishment. Whining is an aversive behavior. Nobody likes to hear it. And gambling is a risky behavior. And in many cases, we respond to risky or aversive behaviors, not with rewards, but with punishments. So do punishments act sort of like anti-rewards? Not precisely. Does punishment work? It can. But there are some kind of tricky things about punishment. One is that the behavior you're going to punish is already happening, and so it must already be rewarded in some way, according to operant conditioning researchers. So punishment is happening in conjunction with some reward, and knowing what that reward is is not always very easy. What reward are you giving your whiny child? You're going to have to figure that out before your punishment is really going to work. Now, One study of this looked at people pressing a button for a reinforcement, for a reward, and they had to press the button 500 times to get the reinforcer. Now, if the button also makes a bad noise, it takes them 18 minutes, as opposed to three minutes, to get to 500 presses. If you give them the option of another button that doesn't make the noise, they completely stop with the button that makes a noise. So what that tells us is punishments slow down people's responding, even when they are given in the presence of a reward, and they also will lead people to find an alternative way to get that reward. But we can also think about another study of rats that were trained to press levers for food. Now, in this particular study, food was given in response to lever pressing, so there was a reward in place. Now, All of a sudden, the researchers change the rules of the game, and the rats are going to get punished when they press. Now, this is cruel, but it's important for understanding punishments. One group of rats got punished immediately, right when they pressed the lever. Another group of rats got punishment sort of a little bit delayed. And a final group of rats got punished in a non-contingent way. And in fact, what happened was they got shocked while they were lever pressing, but the shocks were not connected to their lever pressing. They don't have any way to stop it, and they don't have any way to predict it. This last group, the non-contingent group, is kind of a critical group because just getting shocked could suppress the rat's lever pressing for reasons that have nothing to do with punishment. In fact, rats actually tend to freeze when they're fearful, and that's going to inhibit their ability to lever press. In this study, the punishment group almost completely stopped responding by the second shock. That immediate punishment seemed to work really well. Now, for the delayed punishment and the non-contingent shock groups, they're a little bit suppressed in their responding, which suggests there's a little bit of fear going on there, but they didn't unlearn the behavior. That is, they didn't stop lever pressing. What all this tells us is that punishment works, but punishment works best when it is maximal, immediate, and not introduced in mild form. When we punish children, 
We often violate these principles. We sometimes delay punishment, just wait till your dad gets home. We start with milder punishments and we work towards more severe consequences. And those are approaches to punishment that don't work. What the research says is we have to jump on bad behavior with as severe a response as we think appropriate. Now, between this and classical conditioning, it may seem like we've accounted for everything. We have an account of how people learn associations between different events in the environment and how they learn associations between their behavior and its consequences. But there are some complications, and when we think them through, it's hard to feel like our initial theories of learning are adequate. Let's consider some of the evidence that these theories don't explain very well. First, these theories cannot explain what is rewarding or reinforcing outside the narrow range of innate drives like hunger, thirst, and maybe for people and social animals, a need for praise from others. But monkeys and rats and other animals will press a lever just to make a light go on. There's no need satisfied by turning on lights that we know about, but animals clearly experience that as a reward. Another complication in what counts as a reward comes from work by Premack in the late 50s and early 60s. And this work suggested that behaviors that are more often chosen in a free choice situation are reinforcers for less frequently chosen activities. That's kind of abstract, so let me give a concrete example. Given a choice between running several miles and eating a giant piece of chocolate cake, all else equal, I'd take the cake. Now, the cake can then be a reinforcer for the running, but not vice versa. But as Premack kept working, the relativity of reinforcers became clearer. Like, water is reinforcing when you're thirsty, but not when you've just had a giant glass. Now, in learning theory, as we've talked about it, there's no way to explain how a reward is sometimes less rewarding than at other times. Some stimuli become reinforcers because they're associated with desirable items. The clearest examples of this are token economies. Uh, money is the most famous token economy around, where we have these papers and we can exchange them for things we actually want. But even my son's third grade classroom has a very serious token economy going, where kids get little tokens for good behavior and they can exchange them for candy or toys. But consider the complexity of associations that have to be learned. You get tokens as a result of behaviors, that's operant conditioning. Tokens go with candy or toys, that's classical conditioning. But the kids' behaviors, the rewards that connect to tokens are widely varying. And this is just outside the bounds of generalization that we've talked about with respect to classical or operant conditioning. Finally, some evidence from infants' responses to a mobile they can control and from research on learned helplessness really point to the idea that having control over events is reinforcing in and of itself. Infants smile and coo at a mobile that they control by kicking, but not at one they don't control, even if they're getting the same visual and auditory experience. And when animals are exposed to shocks they can't control, they get withdrawn and apathetic. They stop behaving at all. And this is called learned helplessness. Control over events is a very strong reinforcer. And we can see that when we look at the paradoxical rewards of punishments. So how can punishment be a reward? Take an example familiar for many of us. A married couple attempt to have a serious, interesting conversation about political events at the dinner table. Their five- and eight-year-old don't find this very interesting or rewarding, 
But their attempts to hijack the conversation get ignored, and in short order, the five-year-old begins to spit her food at her brother. This results in a quick and very abrupt shift of parental attention to the children, combined with punishment, scolding, and reprimands. Now, from the adult perspective, what's just been delivered is punishment. But if you think about how reinforcing control is, what the five-year-old has just pulled off is to control the response she receives and to get the attention she desired. Finally, there's evidence that people learn without any rewards from many studies. One example consists of what's called latent learning. Remember the myth from the first lecture that we always know when we're learning? We don't. Consider a famous study by Tolman and Hanzig. And in this study, rats were turned out into a maze. Some of the rats were just allowed to explore without any rewards or punishments. Other animals were given a reward for going a certain route within the maze. Now, a third group of rats weren't given any rewards initially, but 10 days into the study, they were given a reward for going a particular route. At this point, the newly rewarded rats demonstrate that they've in fact learned the correct route because they're much faster to begin going that route than the rats that were rewarded from the beginning. That is, it takes them less time to start demonstrating the desired route. And this can only be the case if they actually learned the maze and what the reward is doing is just incentivizing or giving them the incentive to make use of their learning in a particular way. In related studies, child development researchers have shown that children will even imitate someone who's clearly failing at their intended goal. Now, why would a child imitate someone who isn't getting what they want? One of the most difficult parts of learning theory initially was actually that researchers wanted to avoid considering anything that wasn't directly observable. So you can see the meat powder and you can hear the bell and you can measure the saliva, but you can't talk about the dog having an expectation because that isn't measurable in the same way as those other things. But the complexities of rewards and associations that we've been talking about make more sense if we think people aren't merely learning associations between two stimuli that are reflected in observable behavior, but rather that they're processing their experiences in the service of building a representation of the world in which they live. And that representation is housed in the black box of their mind. In other words, a person's own ideas about the world play a role in whether or not a reward is really a reward. Considered this way, it makes more sense that control over the environment is rewarding in and of itself, and that animals and people exhibit latent learning, learning that's already occurred, but they haven't yet demonstrated in their behavior. And it also makes more sense for explaining how we learn complicated things like a token economy, and for understanding those paradoxical features of punishment. At the heart of this move from thinking about learning solely in terms of classical or operant conditioning to a theory that factored in the subject's representational view, the person's understanding of their world, was what is called the information processing revolution. And we're going to consider it in more detail in our next lecture.